Hello, and welcome to In Conversation With, the podcast from the Lancet Oncology. It's November 2023, and I'm Senior Editor Owen Stratton. This month, I'll be talking to Dr. Philip Karshnia from Ludwig Maximilians University of Munich about the Response Assessment in Neuro-Oncology Consortium's Policy Review and recommendations on standardised tissue sampling and processing during resection of diffuse intracranial glioma. Hi, Philip. Thank you for joining us today. Firstly, your policy review provides recommendations on which tumour regions to sample during surgery. Uh, Could you elaborate on the significance of these recommendations and how they can help improve the precision of sampling? Oh, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. So maximal surgical resection is the first-line therapy for any kind of newly diagnosed glioma as an adult patient, as long as it's safely feasible. And it's also often used in a recurring situation. And if this is not possible, we often pursue biopsy because the tissue we get during either resection or biopsy allows a detailed histopathological and molecular diagnosis according to the current WHO 2021 classification. But the tissue also forms the basis for any kind of further research. So it allows insights into pathogenetic mechanisms, identification of biomarkers, potential targets, pharmacodynamic and kinetics and the setting of window of opportunity trials. So any research really uh, relies on that kind of tissues. However, in gliomas, and particularly of gliomas, in gliomas of higher grades, so grade three or four, tumors are characterized by a substantial level of intratumoral heterogeneity on um, all, on a genetic, on an epigenetic, on a cellular level. So if you only take one small sample, um, there's substantial risk that you only characterize the tip of the iceberg. However, there is no consensus about how the tumor should be sampled during resection or standardized fashion to achieve representative insights into the tumor architecture. And this does not only include the sampling itself, so the tumor volume, the handling of the samples, the storage, etc., but also particularly the locations from where the sample should be taken. So sampling is usually planned on preoperative MRI, And in contrast-enhancing gliomas, this contrast enhancement was traditionally being considered the tumor itself. However, we know from large retrospective data sets, from maximal resection and also from metabolic imaging studies, that the oncologically relevant tumor extends beyond those contrast-enhancing margins. So we also propose how to identify that non-contrast-enhancing tumor portion imaging so it can be sampled. And to get a multidisciplinary view on those issues, we assembled an offer team from four RAINO groups. So RAINO is an international multidisciplinary effort, which aims to standardize research practice in neuro-oncology. And there are different subgroups, and we assembled a few of experts and representatives from RAINO subgroups, which focus on surgery, but also neuropathology, radiation therapy, and metabolic PET imaging, and formulated recommendations for tissue sampling and subsequent handling. And those recommendations were then refined using a two-stage eDelphi approach um, using the input of leading experts in um, those fields. So we were able to came up with 32 recommendations, which we hope to uh, will approve the precision of sampling. So your review uh, covers both low-grade and high-grade gliomas, as well as newly diagnosed and recurrent cases. Uh, How do these recommendations accommodate for the diverse nature of gliomas, and can you explain any variations in the recommended approaches for different types and stages of disease? Sure. So let me come to the issue of low- and high-grade gliomas first. Traditionally, if we thought the tumors were contrast-enhancing on imaging, 
um, represent tumors of higher grade as the contrast enhancement often translates into neuropathological findings, which are consistent with more aggressive growth. However, the WHO 2021 classification established that high grade, a high tumor grade can not only be assigned to tumors with aggressive neuropathological findings, but also based on a molecular profile. So now there is a subset of tumors which on imaging look like a traditional low-grade glioma, but exhibit qualifying molecular markers which allow the diagnosis of a glioblastoma grade 4 or astrocytoma grade 4. And those tumors also behave accordingly. So before we start surgery or biopsy, we do not really know with certainty what type of tumor we are dealing with, and we discussed this particularly in our policy review. We therefore advocate to obtain new imaging only some days before surgery to get the most recent impression of the tumor, regardless whether one thinks this might be a high or low-grade glioma just based on imaging. And we also propose an identical approach to sample the tumor. So we propose to sample the tumor core, the contrast enhancement if this is present, the non-contrast enhancing tumor and the adjacent brain tissues, this is safely feasible. And to take two samples then, uh, per tumor region as distant um, from each other as possible to reflect the spatial heterogeneity. However, as you heard, we still acknowledge that there is a peculiar role of contrast enhancement when present, as this represents potentially a hotspot of tumor activity. In turn, when contrast enhancement is not present, we advocate to incorporate advanced MRI imaging or metabolic PET imaging into the sampling plan to delineate such hotspots. And also fluorescent labeling techniques used during surgery are pro uh, probably pretty relevant. And this brings us to your current situation. Advanced imaging and fluorescent labeling techniques are even more important here as it's very hard to distinguish between treatment effects and true tumor recurrence based on MRI imaging alone. And if only biopsy but not only surgery is pursued in the recurrent situation, we advocate for close collaboration between the sampling neurosurgeon and the neuropathologist to make sure the stored research sample contains as much viable recurrent tumor as possible. This includes interruptive smear or frozen section to enhance the probability of acquiring tissue with a high diagnostic yield. And also information regarding prior treatment should be collected um, to interpret the neuropathological findings. And this particularly includes the radiation um, um, plants uh, which the patient has previously undergone. Liquid biopsies have gained attention as a non-invasive diagnostic tool. Uh, how does your review address the sampling of liquid biopsies and uh, what potential benefits or challenges does this approach offer to clinicians and patients? So when we think about liquid biopsies in patients with a diffuse glioma, we, there are two types of tissues we need to consider. First is blood, second is CSF, so serospinal fluid. And blood represents the source of germline DNA, which is also required for standard molecular diagnosis. So, for instance, to determine um, somatic copy number lesions, such as the 1P90Q correlation status, to distinguish between IDH mutant astrocytomas and oligodendrogliomas. But certainly, it's also needed for large-scale sequencing approaches to distinguish between somatic and germline origin of mutations. But there are also other um, applications which we are discussing in our policy re review. Those include immune phenotyping and biomarker dis discovery. And, and those approaches particularly may guide um, clinicians to distinguish between progressive disease um, and treatment effects in a recurrent situation or to establish a diagnosis when open resection is not safely feasible. And for that purpose, we propose that surgical interventions at initial glioma diagnosis and at any kind of um, presumed progression should allow for collection of peripheral blood specimens. 
less established, our liquid biopsy is based on CMR, CSF, at least in diffuse gliomas, where certainly approaches for hematological um, diseases, such as primary CNS lymphomas, where you can, with a high specificity, um, diagnose um, a PCNSL just based on CSF. And in diffuse gliomas, as those are tumors which are being resected, CSF can often be taken during surgery without being contaminated by blood and assessed without additional burden to the patient. We outline this in more detail in the full um, paper and include also recommendations on the sample volumes. Challenges um, are certainly represented um, by the kind of experimental nature of those liquid biopsies so far. So they are not necessarily very cost-effective. You need to have the um, storage capacities to store both blood and CSF with high organizational burden, which comes with storing those kind of tissue cells. And also different assays, which you may want to use down the road, may require different post-sampling processing. So you need to kind of have a feeling what you want to do with the CSF or the blood later on in order to store it effectively. Importantly, it remains um, to be said here that you need patient or caregiver consent um, prior to any large-scale sequencing of constitutional DNA, given the possible uh, detection of germline alteration and genes predisposing for hereditary cancer syndromes or even non-cancer diseases. And keep in mind that those patients with diffuse gliomas are patients which face a diagnosis which is always life-limiting. So to get consent retrospectively is not always possible. So you really need to know what you want to do with the tissue um, before starting to collect it. And this might be somewhat challenging in many, um, in many cases. You mentioned tissue handling there. So standardized workflows uh, for tissue handling are crucial to preserving uh, valuable clinical information. Uh, could you outline the key elements of the recommended workflow for handling resected tissue and how might this workflow help prevent misinformation loss and contribute to more comprehensive patient care? And finally, does that have implications for uh, multi-institutional consortia? First, there are some precautions which you need to take during surgery in order to optimize sampling. You need to establish an accurate neural navigation in order to really know in which anatomic area you are at the very moment. Um, you need to take the samples early and later during surgery. You may want to make use of interoperative MRI or 3D ultrasound to account for any kind of brain shift and anatomic distortion and use minimal cauterization to re retain the viability of the samples. And then the samples should be handed to a technician or a neuropathologist if interoperative smear of frozen sections are being pursued in order to keep the time to final fixation as minimal as possible. During that time until final fixation, which should be kept below, I would say, 30 minutes, um, the sample should be um, should be stored on wet ice in order to minimize ischemic ex vivo changes in tumor cell properties, for instance, gene expression patterns. And those samples are then handed for final fixation into the lab. And those samples should be accompanied by relevant clinical information. And we have provided a spreadsheet in our final article to collect that kind of clinical information, um, which we believe are um, of crucial importance. For standard diagnosis, the tissue is then um, being stored as, as a, uh, FFPE to retain tissue morphology, and uh, those FFPE samples also um, allow relevant clinical molecular diagnosis. Any tissue which is being left should be stored as deep frozen 
and sh um, so should also the research sample be, uh, be stored. So as deep frozen from minus 80 to minus 160 degrees uh, Celsius, no tissue should be discarded. And it's important to note that this tissue, which is being stored for research purposes, can only and should only be used when a final diagnosis has been established clinically. So the neuropathologists need to have access to that kind of tissue until a final diagnosis is really established. And also, it should not be used uh, fully before, the um, the, before it's clear that no tissue is being needed. For instance, for the patient to enter a clinical trial where tissue assessment for specific biomarker is a prerequisite to enter. And also tissues should be stored for longitudinal assessment of tumor properties throughout the disease course. So you should not fully reach, uh, use all the, all the material you have before the patient basically has run through all available uh, treatments which are, uh, which are an option. There are certainly also less common uh, fixatives and um, which are available for specific purposes such as electron microscopy or nucleic acid analysis. And uh, those analyses also um, may make use of dedicated equipment and workflows. One thing which is often forgotten when we speak about how to store the samples is that you also make, you need to make use of adequate labeling techniques. The NCI, so the National Cancer Institute of the United States, um, suggests that you need an identifier or a combination of identifier, which is firmly attached to the container, and is able to endure the storage conditions. So many institutions have adopted a policy in which they require the use of two unique institutional identifiers together with the date of surgery to allow backtracking to the patient information if you retrospectively need more information. However, the um, clinical information which is being stored, for instance, in the neuronavigation system or on the spreadsheet, which is accompanying the samples, which we have included um, in our policy review, um, should also be labeled with that identifier to allow backtracking of the samples if you want to start from the clinical info. And we believe this is highly relevant for um, multi-institutional consortia as this standardized terminology, when we speak about the, za the samples, and exchange samples between different institutions. We know exactly where the sample is coming from if we all speak the same language. Um, and this is crucially necessary to not lose any kind of information um, between the institutions. In your view, what are the most critical changes that healthcare professionals and institutions may need to make to align with these recommendations? Do you foresee any potential challenges or barriers to implementation that should be considered? Oh, definitely. Um, and that's a wonderful question. So I believe that many things um, which we propose are already probably being done, um, particularly in high volume academic centers. But it's really important to follow our standardized protocol in every single patient. And probably the biggest challenge here is to establish this as a team that every single step needs to be followed to. And also one major purpose of our recommendations and of the entire workflow is to gain samples which are subsequently used for research questions. And there are definitely centers out there which provide glioma surgery to patients but do not pursue academic research. And their goal is really to provide uh, representative tissue samples to a pathologist to establish diagnosis. And so, with that in mind, we also highlighted key recommendations, which we believe are of utmost clinical importance. 
such as a tight time window preoperative uh, imaging. So from the 32 recommendations um, we have provided, 22 were ranked so crucial that basically every larger center should follow them. And in general, we certainly set high standards, but this is probably how the field will be mo uh, moving forward. And for any breakthroughs which are required for medical uh, treatment, we will need tissue and surgical expertise. And this is why we set so high standards, um, which will be challenging to follow, but I think it's also definitely worth it. Thank you for your time. You can read the consortium's policy review now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Dr. Karshnia and thank you for listening. You can subscribe to In Conversation with the Lancet Oncology wherever you usually get your podcasts.